Welcome to Todd's World, the fusion of fiction and podcast. I'm Todd Allen, your wildly talented author, narrator, and provocateur, and I'm back, ready to roll into all the craziness that will be 2024. I took a few months off over the holidays, spent some time reflecting on 2023, the launch of Todd's World, this show, the first two seasons of Insurrection, the first season of Witness. It was a great year, a great beginning. But I also realized it's going to take longer to build this whole thing than I was first hoping. Because of that, I have to make some changes going forward to build the audience for these stories and ensure that I can continue writing and recording the stories and getting them out to you. First, thank you to everyone who paid to subscribe to these stories. Your support for the stories has been amazing. But in order to grow the audience as widely as possible, I've decided to open all the episodes and podcasts up to the public. So as of today, tell your friends and family they can enjoy all of Todd's world without paying for a monthly subscription. For now. That's also true for all of you. I am planning to leave the monthly subscription infrastructure intact. And for all those who enjoy these stories and want to support the show, we would greatly appreciate your support. But due to the realities on the ground, I won't be able to write and produce two seasons of Insurrection and two seasons of Witness a year. My plan is to write and produce one season of each every year while we're growing the audience. I'm planning on Witness Season 2 being released this spring and Insurrection Season 3 this fall. And I'm also planning on releasing some specials, some other stories along the way. Like today's story, Sunday Show, which is a short story and I hope you enjoy it. Will and Carrie will be back with me for a companion podcast to this story, which will release Wednesday like we usually do. And we'll spend some more time talking about our plans moving forward. Even though we're only planning on two seasons of the main shows this year, we will be doing weekly podcasts while we're waiting for Witness and then Insurrection. So join us Wednesday and we'll talk more about the plans for all of that going forward. Todd's World is available wherever you get podcasts, specifically Apple, Spotify, and Substack. Only on Substack the print version of the weekly episodes is released along with the audio podcast for those who like to read as well as listen. And Substack has a great app for both reading and podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Todd's World 2023. You can find clips of the show and share them with your friends and family. We're at Todd's World on Substack, also on Truth Social at the Todd Allen Show. Go to toddsworld.net and check out all the cool Insurrection and Witness merch. The books for the, so, so season one of Insurrection, season one of Witness, season two of Insurrection are available on Amazon. And that's another great way to support the show. Now, the disclaimer, this is a work of fiction. All names, characters, businesses, places, and events even those based on real people or events, are entirely fictional. The product of the author's fabulous imagination. Any resemblance to actual persons living or dead is purely coincidental 
and fictional. So, now that Will is raging at his radio about how long the introduction has been, enjoy Sunday's show. And join us Wednesday for the Companion Podcast. Todd's World is back. Sunday show. The Sunday morning when everything changed didn't start off spectacularly. Harlan sat where he always sat and found his mind wandering over familiar territory. That the church had given itself over to commercialization had been known for years, but then many aspects of the commercialization of Christianity had proven very popular with the rank-and-file congregants faithfully filling the pews and toting their tithes and offerings every week. The old staid hymns had been replaced by hip, rock-edged worship music, and Harlan liked the new worship bands with their catchy, repetitive mantras, much better than the three boring songs and subsequent sermons of his Baptist youth. The new megachurches, for such was what nearly all modern churches aspired to be, put on great shows every weekend, with the quality of the show directly correlated to the number of butts in the seats. Growth became the watchword for all church-related activities. Growth not in the classic sense of maturity, but rather the modern sense where every measurement boiled down to arithmetic. It wasn't unusual for telegenic pastors in spiffy suits to shout out the latest statistics to reliable roars from the audience. We had over 6,000 people raise their hands and give their hearts to Jesus last year. They would yell into the microphone while pacing giant stages, basking in the applause of the faithful. Over 5,000 baptisms. More wild cheers. A mere 3,000 freshly wedded souls in 12 months' time would apparently have been a disappointment. All the while, new storefront churches popped up all across the fruited plains like dandelions after a fresh mowing. In many, the main event happened on a screen. A celebrity preacher would give his sermon to a crowd in one location while simultaneously beaming the message all over the world to fill large screens on empty stages while the locals sat wide-eyed and staring in rapt attention until the word was finally finished for the day. Then the local attendees would file out of whatever passed for an auditorium, stand in line to pick up their children with their respective barcodes pasted on their backs and the whole family would head home to spend the afternoon staring at comparatively smaller screens. If that morning's sermon was especially poignant, they might post about it on their little screens to be read by friends around the world on screens of their own. Thus, the kingdom of God was on the move, screen to marvelous screen. Harlan shook himself out of his reverie and back to the large heated garage, where about 50 people had come that morning to sit in folding chairs and try to worship their Lord without all of the hype and noise and traffic that had come to define a typical American Sunday morning service. There was no stage. That was their first problem. 
How could any red-blooded American church put on a proper Sunday show without a stage? Instead, roughly 75 chairs had been set up in clusters of 25 apiece on three sides of an imaginary square. On the fourth, a lonely metal music stand stood waiting to hold a Bible or Ted's sermon notes, though Ted would never call the short messages he gave sermons. He preferred calling them talks, having no formal training in preaching or ministry, though he did spend a forlorn year at a Bible college in South Carolina, known primarily at the time of Ted's attendance for having separate sidewalks for male and female students. Sharing sidewalks was widely suspected in fundamentalist circles as being responsible for a number of spontaneous pregnancies. Even if such concrete conceptions were somehow contained, the exposed calves flexing beneath the hems of the girls' sensible dresses would likely lead the boys' minds to wander too far afield. A tanned calf might lead the young man's eyes farther up the leg, and before long, all thoughts of Jesus had been short-circuited in even the most pious disciple, as the bubbles of muscles known in scientific circles as the gluteus maximus, flexed and danced like two Arkansas razorbacks tussling under a thin blanket. Never mind that God's original commandment to man was to be fruitful and multiply. Direction rabbits apparently never required. Harlan tried to focus again on the festivities at hand. As a writer, his imagination tended to run off on wild trips, with his mind held hostage in the passenger seat. Ted wasn't the only one who gave talks at their meetings. Anyone could. Though apart from rambling testimonies and prayer requests, most didn't. Public speaking of any kind having the tendency to spark irrational fear in the hearts of most people, the talks were left mostly up to Ted and Harlan. As a writer, he was expected to string together words into coherent thoughts to be shared with his fellow compatriots, and Harlan felt compelled to do his best. There were no spotlights or lasers in the garage either, a testimony to the backwardness of those gathered. Eight incandescent light bulbs screwed into their porcelain sockets shone down on them from a ten-foot ceiling. And Holly Gunderson, it was Brad and Holly Gunderson's garage and home in which they all met on Sunday mornings, had strung up white twinkle lights from the metal rails of the overhead garage doors for added ambiance. Ted had purchased a large remnant of commercial carpet from the Carpet Emporium on the north side of town. They would roll it out for church Sunday morning, then roll it back up once they were done for the day, and it spent the rest of the week standing in the corner by Brad's John Deere riding lawnmower and his large assortment of rakes and shovels and gardening equipment. The garage was not without its own screen, however. Behind the music stand, attached high on the wall, a 60-inch TV stared down at those gathered. They sang some worship songs together, and Gary Baker the garage church's audio-visual director by virtue of the fact he was one of the few among them who could reliably connect his laptop to the mounted TV, put the words to the songs up as they sang. It was a mighty poor version of your typical church, but everyone in the garage seemed to appreciate the effort. 
It wasn't like the Sunday morning mini concerts, of course, but then no one's expectations were all that high. Ted's oldest daughter played the acoustic guitar and led the singing, while Gary's son kept the beat on a box drum. On very rare occasions, Ted dusted off his accordion, but then all the worship songs sounded like polkas, making the fine line between dancing in the spirit or the flesh even more precarious. Back to the meeting currently at hand. Nancy Stewart had left her seat and now stood behind the music stand. Nancy typically shared a devotional reading she had found helpful the week before, or a selection from a book of inspirational religious poems, which tended to rhyme religiously. Harlan smiled at his own creative wit, then found his attention drifting from Nancy's hard-rhyming poetry to her oversized bosom. She was a beautiful woman, tall and elegant, always dressed better than most. Harlan breathed a quiet prayer under his breath, asking God to forgive him for his overactive imagination in the middle of worship. But then his eyes reopened, and he found himself once again focused on Nancy's abundant natural blessings from the Lord. Her beautiful rhymes, Lost to the Hills. Then the poem was finished, and Nancy began speaking from her heart. This week, I found out a dear friend was diagnosed with stage 3 cancer, she said. A Kleenex materialized in her left hand and dabbed at the tears welling in her eyes. Her name is Candy. Can we please intercede on her behalf? And so they did. Everyone seated rose. Most went up front to gather around Nancy and lay hands on her in lieu of her sick friend. The men were all very careful to keep their hands no lower than her shoulders, and they kept their prayers for healing short and focused. The tears were falling now, and Nancy's breast rose and fell in a rhythm to her cries not unlike the lines of the poem she had just read. Once the praying was over, and they all headed back to their seats, Ted approached the music stand for that Sunday's talk. The older ones in the crowd, like Harlan, reached for their leather-bound Bibles of traditional ink and paper, while the younger set pulled out their phones and scrolled to the Bible apps. Harlan's wife wasn't with him, but then she rarely went to church with him since he had started attending the garage church. For a few years, she had gone with him to one of the -the run-of-the-mill megachurches, where they had been encouraged to join the dream team and park cars or make lattes at the coffee bar by the main entrance to the glory of God. But neither Harlan or Bridge had made the leap from Sunday show to Sunday service. Bridge was short for Bridget, naturally, and before their only son had died in a tragic automobile accident, they had been regular members at Cass Street Bible Church, two blocks south of Main Street, smack dab in the middle of a residential neighborhood. After Jason's accident, Neither of them could stand going to the same church they had attended for so many years as a family. Memories of Jason were everywhere, his ghost lurking behind every corner of the church where he'd grown up. It was too much. They went the megachurch route because it was entertaining and easy to get lost in the crowd. The loud music from the mini-worship concert every week washed over them, and when they cried during the songs, No one noticed because no one knew them. 
and anonymity held its own comfort. The messages at the megachurch were mostly uppers, the power of positive thinking with a biblical twist. God became man and suffered and died nailed to a tree to ensure his followers could thoroughly enjoy all the health and wealth and success this world had to offer. Although it went against the grain of most of the preaching he'd heard throughout his life, Harlan found the telegenic preacher's wide, ultra-white smile mildly encouraging. But Bridge couldn't stomach his shallow, oft-repeated bromides. And soon enough, she quit going altogether, preferring the depressing reality of her own life to the shiny, Instagram-ready lives of the Dream Teamers. She was depressed, of course, clinically in every other way, but then Harlan wasn't far from the darkness himself. Today we're looking at Mark, the fifth chapter, Ted said, beginning with the Bible as he nearly always did. Harlan glanced around the three groupings of folding chairs, small white lights twinkling above, and above those brighter lights still. Most of the regulars were present and accounted for, Matt and Heidi Bonkowski, with their four children in tow, ranging from six years old to the oldest in his early teens. They anchored down the center section of chairs with Rhonda Marsh, a retired elementary teacher in her 60s, whose husband died of throat cancer three years earlier. Bill and Evelyn Armstrong always sat by Rhonda. They were in their 70s, and Rhonda and Evelyn were close. Bill had retired from the GM stamping plant in Grand Rapids, and Evelyn did the bookkeeping for several small businesses in the area. They had two kids, Jill, who had married a farm equipment salesman in Wisconsin, who did well enough for himself to afford season tickets at Lambeau Field for the entire family, and Corey, who had married his high school sweetheart, Lori, and stayed close to home. Corey and Lori and their three kids usually sat in the far section of chairs. Most couples their age would have chosen a more normal church, if for nothing more than all the children and youth programs. And Corey and Lori had done that for a while. But then Corey had gotten into a row with one of the many assistant pastors. Harlan thought the man in question had been called a discipleship pastor, or some such thing. Whatever his title... He had gotten a little handsy with Lori at a rehearsal for a Christmas program. He had copped a quick feel of her backside as she was directing the second grade girls where to stand. It all ended rather badly the next day when Corey copped a feel of the pastor's jaw with a closed fist. Harlan smiled to himself, imagining the scene, while Ted talked up front. Then the service door opened, and a stranger walked into the garage. Every head turned to look at the visitor. Ted paused his talk, smiled, and spoke to the man standing just inside the door. Welcome, friend. Please come have a seat and join us in worship, Ted said. The man was tall, over six foot, but his coat still fit loose and his pants were baggy. His hair was long and wiry, and his beard was wild and unkempt. He had a stained Detroit Tigers baseball hat on, and his shoes with Velcro straps instead of shoelaces were soaked. Now that he was in the garage, the man felt out of place, and he looked at the floor, 
and shuffled his wet feet. Bill went to the man and held out his hand, introducing himself. Bill Armstrong, he said, smiling at the stranger. The man looked up at Bill and took his hand. Tim, he said. The man's sudden discomfort was clearly shared by everyone in the garage. How had he found them? No one seemed to know. Had he just found himself in the neighborhood and started checking garages for church meetings? The proverbial needle in a haystack? Harlan got up and got moving. Understanding the only way through the discomfort was to keep moving. Besides, weren't they the body of Christ? Wasn't a situation like this exactly what distinguished them from a typical church where people could slip in and out unnoticed? Harlan smiled as he approached and stuck out his own hand at the man. I'm Harlan. Nice to meet you, Tim. The man named Tim nodded and shook his hand, and Harlan continued. We're happy to have you. Harlan gestured around the garage at the people gathered. Obviously, we don't get a lot of random visitors, given the nature of our deployment. Can I ask how you found us? He had asked the question that was on everyone's mind though it was doubtful anyone else would have asked it. The stranger called Tim looked past Harlan and Bill. His eyes widened, and Harlan could see the whites all around his muddy brown pupils. His eyebrows were shaggy, like his hair and beard, and Harlan saw the famous fight-or-flight response taking over. He feared the man might dart back out the door into the February cold without attempting an answer. But then the stranger took a deep breath, and that seemed to calm his frazzled nerves a bit. He removed his ball cap briefly and scratched at the top of his balding head, then replaced the cap and spoke again. You won't believe me, he said. It wasn't an accusation, just an acknowledgement of men's tendency to automatically discount anything outside their own narrow experience and perspective. But then the man continued his telling anyway. I had a dream last night. It was cold, frigid, even under the overpass where I sleep most nights in the winter. They built a new bridge a few years ago, where 496 splits off from 96 and turns east toward downtown. Like most of the new bridges these days, they installed piping in the road surface to melt the snow and keep the icing down this time of year. You wouldn't think so from driving by, but the heat from the pipes warms the area directly underneath the overpass, and with the prevailing winds generally out of the north and west, the orientation of the road protects you from the worst of the wind chill most nights. Harlan nodded as the stranger talked. He appreciated the details in the man's story. He had a novelist eye as the late Jimmy Buffett had written and sang in a song Harlan only vaguely recalled, although the tune turned up in his mind. Stout sailor legs and a vaudevillian smile. He couldn't remember the name of the sailing song, and the stranger continued on with his story. Even with two pairs of gloves on under two blankets and an old sleeping bag, my fingers were numb, but in my dream it was summer and I was ten years old again, fishing with my own pole and my dad's borrowed tackle box. The sun hung high in a cloudless sky and shone down warm on my smooth tanned skin. 
It was afternoon, and there weren't many fish rising and feeding in the summer heat. I had my fishing pole wedged between two large rocks, while the bobber bobbed gently in the slow current. I was leaned back, stretched out on the lush green grass carpeting the river's bank. I wasn't watching the bobber. My hands were laced together behind my head for a makeshift pillow, and I lay watching the shiny green oak leaves rustle and dance in the treetops. A fox squirrel scampered among the branches, sometimes stopping and munching on an acorn, chewed nut shards raining on the ground below. While he was talking, the man moved toward the assembled chairs and the worshippers watching him in rapt attention. Nothing remotely like this had ever occurred at the small garage church, and the parishioners soaked in the unexpected. Ted still stood behind the metal music stand up front, but he had closed his Bible and focused on the stranger's story, yielding the floor to the unknown. The man now stood just outside the open worship area between chair groupings. Every eye in the room locked on him. I heard a noise in the river, and I looked for my yellow bobber, but it was gone, and the tip of the pole was bending. I scrambled up and retrieved my pole from between the rocks where I had it wedged. As soon as I had a hold of it, I knew I had something big on the line. I tried to reel but couldn't budge whatever it was from the bottom, so I moved toward the water, slowly reeling as I walked. Now the man had moved into the open worship area. Everyone gathered since the approaching climax. The blower on the heater hanging from the finished ceiling kicked on then, and half the congregation jumped at the noise, keyed up as they were from the stranger's presence and tail. Del Howard, Rhonda Marsh's nephew, who attended about once a month, sat in the front row staring up at the strange man with eyes as wide as saucers. Everyone assumed Dell was gay. He bore all the telltale signs. His hair was always well-styled, his longish nails neatly trimmed, and he ended most sentences with overly protracted vowel sounds, lilting higher than necessary. But no one ever brought it up. The regular attenders of the garage church had all been through enough trials and tribulations in their own lives to understand we all have our own crosses to carry. C.S. Lewis once said, How a man can feel anything other than bewildered pity for the genuinely homosexual I've never been able to understand. Perhaps they had all spent enough time wallowing through the mud of their own real lives to find any satisfaction in moralizing on the muddy paths of others. The story had taken over now. The strange man was back in the dream, acting it out as he told it. He walked slowly from one side of the worship area toward the other, his reddened, cracked hands cranking a reel only he could see. At the edge of the riverbank, I looked down into the watery darkness where my line disappeared into the river's current. I was still cranking the reel slowly but steadily. The fish on the other end put up no fight. There was no sudden shaking of the line or unexpected runs back to deeper water accompanied by the whine of the drag. 
just a slow pulling into shore of whatever had latched on while I was daydreaming on the green grass. I wondered if I had hooked on to a log, but then I saw a flash of gold light reflected in the dark water, and my neurons buzzed with nervous excitement. Then I saw the yellow bobber still attached to the line. Then following the bobber, the face of a man materialized beneath the water and grew larger as I continued to crank the reel. Of course, I couldn't see myself in my dream, but I have to guess my eyes were peeled open wider than they'd ever been before. I don't know how I kept turning that reel, but I did. The bobber broke the surface, and the river man followed close behind it. His hair was long and blonde, and soaking wet. My hook was in his mouth, and when he spit it out, the empty hook flashed in the sunshine. But then the man smiled, and his white teeth sparkled and danced with a light all their own, a light that made the afternoon sun look shabby by comparison. I quit reeling and dropped my fishing pole. But then the man from the river kept coming, walking out of the water toward me, and I backed away, matching him step for step, but the river bank was wet, and I slipped and fell, and in my shock and fear I couldn't find it in myself to clamber back to my feet. Instead, I watched the man walk out from the water and scale the bank, and then he stood over me, looking down on me, still smiling, his teeth still gleaming. I covered my face with my hands and whimpered, but then the river man spoke. Don't be afraid, he said. But it was too late for that. I was shaking on the ground. Then I felt his hand on my arm, and my fear retreated, and I dropped the hands covering my face. He was kneeling down beside me, and his eyes were warm and gentle and kind, and he nodded, then raised me up to my feet again. Walk with me by the river, he said and I did. No one moved. No one spoke. It seemed to Harlan in that moment that no one even breathed. But of course, that was just his overly descriptive writer's imagination running away on him. Still, the spell cast over the garage church was complete. The stranger was still there, in the open worship area between the groups of chairs, where Nancy Stewart, overcome by the Spirit, would sometimes dance before the Lord to the uncomfortable but approving stares of the men in the church. But though he was still with them in body, the man's eyes had taken on a faraway look. He was back in his dream, walking with the man he had caught in the river while his pole had been lodged in the rocks and his fingers laced behind his young head. He had told me not to be afraid, and the fear did pull back a few steps at the sound of his voice, but not enough for me to speak to the river angel, for that's what I had determined him to be, an angel who resided at the bottom of the river. That would change as we made our way along the river. I have difficult news, the river angel said to me. America's days are ending. The eagle is falling from the sky. Judgment is prepared for her people, because they have turned their backs on the God of their fathers. They openly mock him, saying, Who is God? Where is he that we should consider him? 
There is no God. Look at our vast wealth, the might of our armies, the largesse of our trade. We are the only God we've ever known. Judgment is coming, and soon. The drums of war sound. The barbarians are already storming the gates. In their arrogance, your leaders are welcoming the very enemies that will destroy them. Sound the warning. I looked up at him then, in my dream, and finally spoke. Sound the warning? To who? I'm just a boy. The river angel looked down at me, walking beside him. His eyes held the truth. But my hands were warm in my dream, and I didn't want to see the truth. The Spirit will lead you to a small church. Tell them what I've told you. I didn't understand, but then the angel had moved on. Destruction will roll in like waves from the east, and the eagle's defenses will fail. The enemy is already pouring in from the south. The country will be overrun. Their arrogance against God will be exposed. The scepter will be torn from the eagle's talons and flung to the stars. Chaos will cover the land. Lawlessness will haunt them. Thieves will be honored and celebrated, while the righteous are mocked for fools. The bear and the dragon will descend from the north, conquering as they march. But the land is too much for them. The people cannot be governed. The rebels will not be put down. None of this made any sense to me. But as the river angel spoke, and I walked beside him, pictures and scenes filled my mind, and his words seared themselves into my memory. They became part of me. The visions brought tears to my eyes. But that's not the whole story, the man who had come up from the water said. His eyes had been shadowed with trouble, but they brightened. An energy and vigor seemed to reanimate him with this new bend in the tale. God has heard the prayers for revival, the repentance of the faithful remnant of the saints. Destruction and judgment are certainly on their way, riding on the winds of the morning. But the bride will rediscover her bridegroom. Her heart will turn back to him and he will bring healing in his wings. The rock of his church will be made strong once again, and the gospel will once more be preached to the people. There will be a great harvest in the land in those days, and then the end will come. We came to a turn in the river, and we paused our walking and stood together, looking out across a wide plain and low hills in the distance and rising mountains farther on. I stood searching the horizon, my heart yearning for the wide-open spaces. Can I cross? I asked the river angel, knowing the answer. The man from the water turned to me and knelt so our eyes were level. He smiled a small, tight smile, the kind of smile that comes from knowing the difficult road ahead. Not just yet, my friend, he said. I was rubbing my hands together, 
and he reached for my ten-year-old boy hands and took them in his river angel hands. Your troubles are almost at an end, Tim. Soon you'll be on the other side. But first, go to the church. Tell them what is to come. Sound the warning. Follow the Spirit. He will guide you. His final words spoken. The man from the water bent his face to his hands, holding mine. And he blew into his hands. And my hands grew warm. And then the warmth spread all the way through me. A warmth unlike any I've ever known. As the warmth spread from my fingers to the rest of my body, the dream faded around me, and my vision darkened. I awoke to a rising red dawn and a cold western wind. But in spite of the cold, I was warm. Warm all over. Miraculously warm. The dream and the river's angel's words were still bright and vivid in my mind. And as I stretched in the cold morning wind, I saw a dark SUV pulled off to the side of the road under the overpass, idling, its exhaust clouding in the cold air. I ambled down the slanting concrete toward the idling vehicle. The SUV's windows were tinted, and I couldn't see inside, but when I got close, the front passenger side window rolled down, and I leaned in to see the driver, an old man with a friendly Midwestern smile. Howdy, friend, the old man said. Need a ride? Yes, I said. Thank you. Then I got in, and we pulled away. The friendly old driver's name was Larry. He hailed from over near Vermontville. He never asked me where I was headed, and I returned the favor. I had no idea where I was going. But Larry seemed to have somewhere in mind so I relaxed and enjoyed his conversation. A retired pastor, he had pastored a Bible church in Charlotte for 25 years. That had been a while back, though. He didn't say his age, of course, but he was somewhere north of 80 if he was a day. We were on the road for an hour and a half. He did most of the talking, about his life and family and ministry the highlights and lowlights of eight decades condensed into a long Sunday drive. And that was fine with me. I enjoyed Larry's stories, and I was still rattled by my dream and the unnatural warmth still coursing through my body and the convenient idling vehicle waiting under the expressway for me as soon as I woke up. Eventually, Larry pulled to the side of the road in front of one of the countless small private subdivisions with big houses on big lots and black iron street lights and wooden fence enclosures for their rolling dumpsters. This is it, Larry said, shifting the SUV into park. I sat looking out at the entrance to the private road leading back to all the tidy suburban homes. It was as I sat staring at the road leading here that the ridiculousness of the situation struck me with a force not unlike that of a Mack truck. Strangely, that didn't give me pause. I smiled at Larry. Thank you for the ride, Pastor Larry, I said, meaning it. Then I climbed out of Larry's SUV and I walked up the private road into Timber Meadows.
I was trying to listen to the spirit, but the wires had apparently gotten crossed and I was only picking up static. I expected Larry to drop me off at a church or near a church, not out in the middle of rural central Michigan at a subdivision. I wandered off kilter for a while. Sure, there had been some kind of cosmic mistake. Then I saw this home and all the cars outside in the driveway and along the street, and suddenly I knew. Timber Meadows did have a church. The River Angel knew his business. And then I walked in here, and you were all here for the rest. And now I've done it. I've told you the prophecy of the River Angel. I've sounded the alarm. Tim stood in the middle of the worship area, staring past their heads out the overhead garage door windows. Low clouds floated in a gray sky. Harlan sat in stunned silence like everyone else in the garage. He turned his eyes to the overhead door windows, to the clouds and the darkening sky, but he couldn't see what Tim saw. The man who no longer felt like a stranger smiled as we looked out the windows up at the sky. I see it, Tim said. A wide plain, low hills in the distance, then mountains rising up to a clear blue sky, just across the river. Harlan's eyes came back to Tim, the man under the overpass who had a dream and sounded the warning. Tim was staring into another world. In the light of the incandescent bulbs and the hanging twinkle lights, his face seemed to glow with the light of heaven. And then Tim's eyes closed, and he collapsed to the floor in front of the music stand and the surrounding chairs and all their respective congregants. Corey got to him first. When he rolled him over, there was the beginning of a smile at play on his lips and no pulse in his neck. Tim had crossed the river, just like that. Silence descended on the small group gathered in the garage church. They all looked at each other, staring. No one knew what to say. No one knew what came next. 